can have a seat. Uh, well, man, I am so excited uh, to be here with you this morning. I, I will tell you this. I have to kind of piggyback off of what Christian and Anna just did a few minutes ago. I love this about our church, that uh, no one can ever look at our church and say, oh, they're just into their little church or they're just into their little community. Man, God has used this church uh, to do things in many different places, not just uh, here in our community, but in Sweden as well, uh, as well as many other things going on. And so I just wanted to take a moment this morning to just keep you informed on several things that you can be praying about uh, as we, uh, before we get into this message. First off, uh, we have two uh, overseas right now. Uh, they just left this week in, uh, going to Guatemala, uh, Joey Strickland and, uh, and also Brandon Davis. They're in Guatemala right now, so you can be lifting them up in prayer. Uh, some of you might have heard on national news, uh, Nepal actually had an earthquake this week. Uh, and at that time, our mission partners there uh, in Nepal uh, were actually at the epicenter of where that occurred. And uh, thank God they are okay, they are alive and well, uh, but they are in the process right now of helping uh, recover that area. Many have died and several were injured and several more have, are still missing. And so you can be in prayer uh, for that going on uh, in the midst of, of all of this. Um, but man, God is on the move, even despite tragedy like that, God is on the move. Um, we, we, we had this opportunity there in Sweden, and we also want to just share with you other opportunities. Christian mentioned the International Day of Prayer uh, this evening from 6 to 8. I want to invite you to be a part of that. Um, but, but even more so than that, if, if the Lord is leading you, maybe you feel uh, a strong pull to the missions, to, to go overseas. We have two uh, mission trips coming up here soon, Mission Nepal. Uh, there's dates there in your handout for that in February, as well as our warehouse, our student ministry is going to be going to Guatemala this spring. So if you have any desire for, for this in, in your heart, if this is something you're looking to do, we want to give you opportunities as a church to go on mission. And so these are the first two coming up here uh, in the early part of next year, we want to invite you to come alongside of us. There's an interest meeting for both of those. You can check that out, but we'd love for you to continue to pray. Uh, whether you go or not, be, pray, be in prayer for what God is doing all over the world and how he's using Pleasant City Church to impact people with the gospel. So we just want to say thank you for that. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, uh, we're in the middle of a series called Encounters, and we've been answering this question. What does it look like when Jesus intersects your life? Like when you are on the path of your life and Jesus walks into the picture. What does that look like? And we've been saying this the last few weeks, that when you encounter Jesus... It requires something in you. It requires, one, for you to answer who Jesus is. And it also requires you to adjust who you are. That Every time we look in Scripture, we look at these encounters, we notice these two things. There's these questions of who is Jesus and how does it affect you as a person. And so this morning, I want to look in John chapter 5 at another story. And, and I want to just tell you guys, like, I, I, I recognize that 
Uh, several of you are, are uh, God is working in your hearts, and for some of you, you know, there's no email, there's no text, and that's that's great. For others of you, man, the Lord is, has prompted you over the last few weeks or uh, to email me or to email someone on our staff, and um, in the process of this, here's what we know to be true, that people are encountering Jesus, Right? People are encountering Jesus. And some of you, even this week, have, have, have shared with me how Jesus has intersected your life, even this week. And, and I, I don't want to blow past this, because I think sometimes when we're reading Scripture and we're getting excited, thinking about the different encounters Jesus has, has with people, yes, they're very exciting. It's exciting to read about. But, but I don't want to just skip past this. For some of us, when we encounter Jesus, it's painful, right? It's painful sometimes. Things in our life, things, circumstances that we're involved in, sin that might be in our life. When we encounter Jesus, yes, it's exciting. Yes, it's, it's assuring to know that, that Christ loves us and is pursuing us. But it's also difficult. And, and I don't want to skip past that, like, Last week, we we were with the woman at the well, and and I recognize that's a difficult passage. And and I just want to say to you, even if you have emailed me or you haven't emailed me or texted me or whatever, I just want to say to you, Jesus sees where you are, and even in that encounter, he has grace, he has love, he has mercy, and he is offering you forgiveness, and he is offering you freedom. And so I just want to continue that narrative as we look at our story today. Today we are looking at the encounter at the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda. And last week, it's kind of interesting, last week we found ourselves at a well, and this week we find ourselves at a pool. So it seems Jesus loves water about as much as I did as a kid, right? I mean, we're at a well last week, we're at the pool this week, And uh, I tell you, every time I hear this story, it reminds me of something that happened to me when I was very young. Uh, When I was about nine years old, uh, we moved to Poplar Circle. And uh, it's here in Shelby and moved there on Poplar Circle. And we were neighbors beside a person who, uh, or we were neighbors with someone who had a pool, a swimming pool. And I'll just tell you, at nine years old, this is before, you know, Ruby uh, had their YMCA. It wasn't very common for our family to go to the pool. But you can imagine as a nine-year-old how much I loved the pool. Like, I, I wanted to be in the pool. And we had one friend that I knew that had a pool. And it was very rare that we would actually go to their pool. And so we would set up this little kiddie pool at my house. And me and my sister would get in the pool. And literally, it's like this much water in the pool. It was terrible, all right? But then we move into this house. And our neighbor has like a full-on swimming pool. And we meet the neighbor. They seem like nice people. And almost every day during the summer, every evening, they'd be out at the pool. And I remember as a nine-year-old boy, our house, our, they had a fence, but our house had one level that was a little higher where they could visually see me. And so what I would do at nine years old is I'd go get my swimming trunks on. I'd take my shirt off. So they knew. They knew, right? And I would go stand in the highest place of the yard 
and I would just squat like this and just watch them swim. These two adults, no kids, just some adults and some teenagers, I think. And I remember just squatting like that, hoping and praying that they would invite me to come swim. And we lived there for a couple years, and I got to go one time for like <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> Pretty sad, right? I mean, there was more than one occasion where I'd get that swim, those swimming trunks on, hopeful that I would get invited to the pool at nine years old. And I remember this at 41, I still remember this, this memory. Only invited once. And every time I read this story, I think about this thing that happened in my life. But here's the deal. Jesus is going to step into something more amazing than this one little neglect that I had as a nine-year-old. So I want us to pick up the story there in John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, we don't know which festival it is. It could be Passover. It could be Pentecost. It could be um, one of the other ones. We don't know which one. But look at what it says in verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades, five covered porch areas. And this is kind of interesting. You can go to this pool today. Here's an actual picture of what you would see if you would go to the pool right here and now. You can see the colonnades here where people would sit under there. And uh, there are two pools here. Uh, actually, I think I have a picture on the side here. This is kind of what the pool of Bethesda would look like. It's actually two different pools that sit there. And Bethesda actually means house of mercy. And uh, these two pools were there, and you could get under one of the colonnades around the sides. You could get under there for shade. And it's near the temple. So if you see the pool of Bethesda, if you look over to the left, in the very top left corner, that's what the temple looked like. That's a model of the temple. And that's where, that's where the temple was. They were just a few yards, a, few, a couple hundred yards from where the temple set. And on the other side, it's not in this picture, but just a little to the right, the bottom right, of this little picture, the bottom right, there was this famous gate called the Sheep Gate. And this is what we read here in the passage. The Sheep Gate was the lowest class gate. So like if you were going through the Sheep Gate, you would kind of be known as the low class of society. It's the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, instead of the cheap side of town... Uh, it was the sheep side of town, right? Like, I know, I came up with that myself. That's a good one. Um, Jesus, here's what I love about the story. Jesus didn't mind being associated with the sheep side of town. That the sheep gate, the pool of Bethesda, all of that was located in the sheep side of town. And here's what I love about this. Jesus is not relaxing in a place of prosperity or popularity for that matter. Jesus is relating in a place of pain. 
He's going to the epicenter of Jerusalem where the most pain and the most suffering is going on. If you could pick any place in Jerusalem, it would be this place. And we're going to read here why that is. Look at verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. This is a sad place filled with really sick people. So here's the question. Why are they there? Why are they at this place? Now, something weird is going to happen if you're reading in a paper Bible right now or maybe on your little phone. You're going to read something, and a lot of your Bibles are about to do this. You're going to get to verse 3, and all of a sudden it's going to go from verse 3 to verse 5. You see that? Some of your Bibles are doing that. Some of you don't have a verse 4, and some of you do. And here's the reason for that, okay? A copyist added this verse 4 later, but it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts that we have on record. That's why some of your Bibles have it, some of your Bibles don't. And, and here's what was going on. A copyist, someone who was copying the Word of God down, put in like the margin of the copy why people were coming to this pool. He was basically giving them a commentary, giving them an idea of the common idea of what was going on during this time. But here's the truth, and we know this like factually. It wasn't John that wrote this verse. It was a copyist who was giving commentary on why this was happening the way it was. And so I want to read to you what was going on here at the pool, what they believe. So if you don't have this, I've got it on the screen for you. Verse 4 says this, and again, this is just a commentary on what's going on. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So the common story was that an angel of God would come down and bubble the waters, stir the waters. In fact, if you remember last week, there's a word we use for this. Like when water is springing out, when water is bubbling, the word for that is living. When water is living, when there's living water, the first person in the pool, once that started, would be healed. And more likely, if we're going to be real, we look at this now and we think, okay, maybe there was like a thermal, uh, a geogra- or geological phenomenon going on. Maybe it was like a thermal spring that was coming up. Uh, another thought is, you can see the pools here again, that maybe the, the northern pool, the higher pool, maybe it was like emptying water into the southern pool and maybe it's creating this bubble effect. Uh, regardless, here's what would happen. Water would stir, and whoever got in first, allegedly, was healed. And for some of you, you're asking the question, well, were they healed? Like, did it actually happen? And I've looked at this for a week, and I've looked at a lot of different thoughts and commentaries on it, and here's the definitive answer. I don't know, right? We don't know. We don't know whether he was healed or whether these people were healed or not. Maybe it was a hopeful legend. 
Maybe it's kind of like the placebo effect. You've heard of that before where the first person gets in and because they're so mentally hyped up about it, maybe they feel better for a time and then maybe they got out and they started feeling bad again. We, we don't know. Or maybe it actually happened. I mean, I'm not going to say it didn't. It doesn't say that it didn't happen. Weirder things have happened in Scripture. You remember Elisha, the story of Elisha the prophet? He died, his bones are put in, uh, in a, a tomb, and they wind up putting another body in there. The body touches Elisha's corpse, and that body comes back to life. That's in 2 Kings 13. So weirder things have happened. But we don't know. But here's what we do know. Can you imagine the frenzy of everyone trying to get in the pool first? Can you imagine that? You remember old Black Friday? Like, like we're past that now. We're sophisticated. We sit in our nice comfy chair and we scroll and we tap. And that's the extent of our Black Fridays. But just a few years ago, we would literally forsake our families on Thanksgiving evening. Like we'd cut Thanksgiving short. We'd be like, we'll get the pecan pie when we get home. We're going to Walmart. And we'd get in those lines, we'd have our stuff ready to go, and we would fight over a $39 printer in a heartbeat. This is kind of what I imagine, but think of the stakes that are at place here. Imagine this type of frenzy. Blind and paralyzed people in the water. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people who can't see or swim all desperately relying on this system, this system to heal and save them. And then enters Jesus. Jesus is not a system. Jesus is a savior. Think about where Jesus is at. He's literally between the sheep gate and the temple. He's between the most prosperous place in all of Jerusalem, the temple, and he's between the most neglected place in all of Jerusalem, the sheep gate. You know, shepherds literally would come to this gate, and the reason it was called this is they would bring the sheep to this gate to enter into Jerusalem. They bring the sheep that would be sacrifices. These shepherds, commoners, people that had no business at the temple, they would raise up these lambs, hopefully praying that the lamb would be pure enough and sacred enough and sanctified enough to be used as one of the temple sacrifices. And they would bring these sheep, these lambs, through that gate. And here's the thing, those sheep and lambs would never come back through. It was a one-way ticket to the temple through this gate. And the sad part about it is these shepherds would raise up lambs to be sacrificed at the temple. And yet they themselves wouldn't be worthy to go to the temple. The distance between this place where Jesus is at, the pool of Bethesda. The distance between this place and the temple is the distance between where you're sitting right now and UPS. The place where God dwelt to here. But it could not have felt more than millions of miles away for these people. 
Into that thing, into that place, into that moment, Jesus walks into that broken place where people seem unfit for society and excluded from the presence of God. This is where Jesus walks in. In fact, five chapters later, Jesus will literally compare himself not to the pristine temple. He'll compare himself to this sheep gate. And he says here in John 10, look at this. Therefore, Jesus said again, very, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is comparing himself to what the commoners used. He's not comparing himself in this passage to the pristine temple. He's comparing himself to the place where the everyday folk, the people that could never, ever even set foot in the area where God dwelt, he's comparing himself to that place. That this is who has entered the mess of Bethesda. Not a system, but a savior. Look at verse 5. One who was there... One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Imagine that. Half of your lifetime. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned, and this is kind of an interesting thing. The word learn there is the word gnos. And it's actually a better word would probably be perceived or knowing. Jesus doesn't learn anything in, in, in the sense of that because he's omniscient. He knows everything. So really it says more like this. Jesus saw him lying there and perceived that he had been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him. Look at what Jesus asks him here. Do you want to get well? Do you, do you want to get well? I mean, get this picture in your mind. This, this paralyzed man, this invalid, 38 years laying around, is laying right beside the pool that's supposed to make you better, to actually heal your, your, your infirmity. And he's asking this guy, hey, hey, man, I know the pool's right there. Do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Of course the man wants to get well. Why is Jesus asking this question? I believe it makes a lot of sense. It's a fair question, especially today. Here's what he's saying. Are you comfortable in your present misery? Do you want to continue to be the victim? We live in a victim mentality society. And it's easy for us when we've experienced pain, when we've experienced suffering, when we experience abuse, when we experience sickness, when we experience things that are out of our control and sometimes in our control that, that just go bad. It's easy for us to play the victim. Because if I'm the victim, everyone else owes me something and I don't have to take responsibility. And as the victim... We compare our pain and suffering with everyone else. 
And the thing that makes us feel good, even in our current circumstance, the thing that brings us a little hope and a little help and a little feeling of relief, is when we look at other people's circumstances and think, I have it worse than them, and it makes us feel better about ourselves. And we see this, and this is why Jesus is asking this question. He's saying, hey, are you, do you want to get better? Are you tired of playing the victim? Are you tired of being comfortable in your misery? So Jesus says, do you want to get well? Look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, when the water bubbles. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Think about this. This is a sad story. This guy had no one. No family to help him. I mean, I can tell you now, if I had a loved one in this situation, when, when it was time to go, man, we'd be sitting right there ready. I'd just literally, I'd have them right there and I'd just roll them into the pool. Right? I mean, that's what we're thinking, right? Like, if, if this was my wife, if this was my child, if this was my parents, if this was a close friend, really any friend, like, I'm not going to let them just lay there for 38 years. If I truly believed this actually worked, I'd be right there. Guy has no one. But more shocking than that is that this man couldn't even see past the system. If you ask this man, what is your real need? What's your real need? What would he say? He, he told you what he said. My real need is to get in the water before everyone else. Is that his real need? No, he needed to be healed. That was his real need. And he couldn't see his ultimate deeper need. He was putting all of his marbles, marbles and effort into that water, that system of healing to be the thing that would bring his need, deepest need being met. And if we're honest, we do the same thing, don't we? How many times have, I, have you asked the question, if I only had just a little more money, man, if I just had some more money, if I just had a better job to get more money, that would make everything better. No, that's not the, the highest need. The need you're speaking of there is you're looking for security and you're looking for contentment in your life. And you think that the money is going to bring it. Or if I could just be married... If I could just be married, everything would be okay. No, the deeper need there, you're looking for acceptance, you're looking for companionship, there's a deeper need there. If I could just get that promotion. No, you're looking for significance. You're looking for something to meet a deeper need that's there. And all the while, we are so desperately trying to fix and feel all the surface-level needs through some system of effort. I spent some time in, in several different countries, and one of the ones that really just bothered me was Nepal. And I remember going to one of the Hindu temples there and watching people try to feel their needs at the temple. They would go to this priest who would be sitting on the floor, and he would look, he'd literally look like a homeless person. And he would be sitting on the floor 
And literally, you'd pay him a little money. He'd take this flower over here. He'd crumble it up in his hand. He'd put it in this bowl. He'd get this incense. He'd stick it in there. He'd set it on fire. And then he would look at the person and say something in Nepali, uh, you're good to go. And these people were lined up to do that. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islamic faith. Here we see Judaism playing out. We see in Sweden, intellectualism, the idea of fixing and filling the mind. If I could just fix and fill my mind and put all this intellect in there, it would fill all of the deepest needs of my heart. Hedonism, hedonism is fixing and filling every pleasure impulse we have. If it makes me happy, then then those deepest needs will be met. And here's the truth. Church people get caught up in the same systems of my effort to fulfill my needs. For a lot of us, we spend our money the same way the rest of the world does. We follow the same pursuits. We ultimately believe in a false prosperity gospel. That if I just tweak these few things about my behavior, if I just work on myself and fill my Amazon order history up with self-help and self-care and self, 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 it'll fix all the deepest needs of my life. You're still trying to figure out what you're looking for in life. You're still like me as the nine-year-old sitting at the edge of the pool. Wondering the secret to get in the pool. Wondering if I could just make it happen. And for some of us, that's where we're at. We are literally, we're on the edge just just waiting to figure out, how do I get into the pool? Verse 7, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. All around this pool, and let me say this, the pool of humanity are desperate people trying by their effort to get their deepest needs met. You see, the system is about trying, but the Savior is about trusting. You know what Jesus did not do? Jesus didn't say to the man, you know what? I can help you. I'm a carpenter. I'm I'm kind of a strong guy. You know what? Here's what we'll do. When that water starts stirring, I'll pick you up because I'm I'm a strong guy. I'm going to carry you to where you need to be. And and, and here's the thing. Jesus, you know, he would know everything, right? He would know when the water's going to stir again. He would know it down down to the millisecond of when the water's going to stir. He could literally stand right there on the edge of the pool and say, all right, here's the deal, man. As soon as that water stirs, you're going to be the first one in. I'm going to make sure you're the first one in. Here's the truth. Jesus could have done that, right? Jesus could have made sure that happened. And at the millisecond that water started to live and bubble, he could have just dropped them in. He didn't do that. Stir, splash, healed, good luck, man, have a great life. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't try to get the guy in the bubbling living water, Jesus brought the living water to the guy. Verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Think about this. 38 years wiped out by eight words of Jesus. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. For 38 years, this mat has had carried the man, and now it's time for the man to carry the mat. Isaiah 35 prophesied this very thing, that in the days of Messiah, the lame would leap like deer. This is what Jesus did for this man. And then you have this awkward little transition at the end of verse 9. It says this, the day on which this took place was Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. You ever been to one of those churches? I mean, can you, like, they're missing it, right? Like, the guy got healed, he's carrying his mat, and they're focused on this rule they made up about how you're not supposed to carry your mat on that certain day. They're fixated on this. Talk about missing the point. But Jesus is not pacifying tradition here. Jesus is producing transformation. Verse 11, but the man replied, the, the guy who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now this just shows that the Pharisees were part of the same broken system that this man was a part of, right? Because their religious system was these Pharisees had set in motion this sacred tradition that could, have, that could literally have you arrested to carry your mat certain times, including the Sabbath. And these guys were totally missing the point. Completely missing it. It's funny, I, I thought a lot this, year, this week about me being nine I remember another memory when I was nine years old. I remember I was on a soccer team that was really good in soccer at nine years old. I was probably the worst one on the team. And actually, Doug Hewitt, uh, who's sitting over here, was the coach. Him and my dad was the assistant coach. And I remember being at the championship game. And we're sitting there, and Doug was just a phenomenal guy. He's always been a phenomenal guy, good coach. He's got us all huddled up or trying to huddle nine-year-olds up to tell them, all right, here's, we're, it's at halftime, right? Here's what we got to do to win this game. And you know what I was doing? My dad tells me this. I don't remember this. My dad said, I'm over here, not at the huddle, looking at an ant pile. <laughs> and we're stirring the ants up, Right? This is what I think of when I think of this. It's so easy for church people to do this. That God is doing the remarkable and we're watching ants. Defending to the nth degree our traditions. And here's the truth, guys. It's the reason, it's the reason so many churches are closing. When we care more about our traditions than we do the transformation God wants to do, the doors will close. 
And this just added fuel to the fire of the Pharisees. In fact, there's this huge transition in the Gospel of John from this point. They, they had their reservations about Jesus, but from this point and beyond, it wasn't just reservations about Jesus. They began to completely reject the Messiah because they couldn't look past. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. I mean, in, in our language, it would be like, Hey, man, good to see you're healed, man. High five. And for a lot of us, that's where the story would end. Like, if, if we took the United States, Jesus, we would just go ahead and end the story there and end the conversation there. I fixed your problem, I gave you healing, I gave you grace, and now I'm just going to fly off again until you need me again. But Jesus is not a life coach to be considered. Jesus is a Lord to be obeyed. You remember the old days when we used to call Jesus Savior and Lord, not just Savior? That there is something tied to life change in a human being. There's something tied to us Actually putting our faith in Jesus, it's absolute belief, right? It's, it's knowing who Jesus is, but it's also adjusting who we are. It's belief and it's repentance. In the gospel, that's what he's saying. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Repent and believe. And we know this because of how Jesus answers this man, how Jesus said, what he says to this man. So Jesus said, see, you are well again. Great job. And then look what he says. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We don't know why this man was an invalid. In some ways it might imply that his, his situation was because of sin in his life. It could be that. It could not be that. But here's what we do know is true and really probably the message that Jesus is giving. He's saying here there are worse things at stake than being paralyzed in the pool for 38 years. The eternal condition of your soul, where is that? Yes, I'm Savior, but I'm also Lord. And Jesus is more interested in healing this man's soul than healing this man's body. And for some of us, I'll just be honest, for some of us, we will receive the fix, but we reject the following. We'll receive the fix from Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's great, right? Fulfill those deep needs in my life. Fulfill these things that I got going on. Fix this. Heal this. Make that right. Do all of that. But for some of us, we reject the following Jesus. For some of us, that's the Jesus we like. The Jesus that shows up when I'm in a jam. And the sad thing is, this is one of the few stories we don't know the full story of this man. I would love to say to you that this man was forever changed. We don't know. Did he stop sinning? Did he repent? You know, there never seems to believe, to, there never seems to be an actual belief or confession from this man that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, you remember he says to the Pharisees, I don't know who it was, it was just some guy that healed me. In fact, after this, verse 15, he seems to go rat Jesus out to the Pharisees. 
And here's what we don't know. Did this man follow Jesus or did he just get the fix without the following? We don't know. But I would say this, if, if he never put his faith in Jesus, if he never chose to follow him, I'll go ahead and tell you, man, this is one of the most pitied persons in all of hell right now. Because he was there. He was in the spot where Jesus saw him, saw his deeper needs, and began to work in his life. And maybe he got the fix, but did he follow? Who knows? Have you encountered Jesus? Has this changed who you are? Not just changed physical things, not just changed earthly things, like, yeah, I'm a better person now, and yeah, my family's together, and yeah, this, and yeah, that. Not just that. Has he changed the spiritual direction and trajectory of your life? Everyone is focused on the system to save And what Jesus is saying to us is, hey, stop waiting for the water to bubble. Just look at me. Repent and believe. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Are you relying on the system? Are you trusting in the system? Are you trying to get what you need and what you want in the system? Or are you trusting the Savior? I don't know where you're at today. But I'll tell you, in a room this size, just because you're at church, I'll tell you, a lot of people, a lot of people use the church as just another system. Just another system to feel good about yourself, another system to fix a couple of relational needs you have or a few things that you got going on just a system some of you guys might just be using this place for a a networking place for your job for your career to further your connections your contacts it's all a system to you and Jesus is 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 right there by the side of the pool and he's saying you want to get in this pool so bad but I'm it man I'm going to be the thing that brings lasting satisfaction to your life going to bring you life so wherever you're at this morning I want to pray for you there's going to be prayer partners here at the front let's go ahead and stand to our feet Father thank you for this time we have together Lord I pray God that we would just listen to you Lord that you would use these these words from John Lord these words really ultimately from you God about the way that you encounter people Lord and God that we ourselves would encounter you in a great way Lord God, that it wouldn't just be of us acknowledging who you are, but that, God, that would change us from the inside out, Lord. We wouldn't just care about the fix in our life. God, we'd want to follow you as well, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that all these areas, God, the people in all these countries worshiping false idols, worshiping false gods, and the gods we have right here in America, materialism and hedonism and intellectualism and all these things that we put all of our our try and our effort in, God, they're all kingdoms that are going to crumble one day. Father, help us to recognize that, Lord, to put our trust in you.
Father, help us to be obedient in this time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.